0: Thank you for contacting the Clay County Sheriff's Office. This is- thank you for calling the Walton County Clerk of Court. Hey, County Controller, is can going to help you? Yes, I wanted to find out um, if you can check it to see if you have a record for me. Um, I have a report um, number, but it's yeah, from nineteen. you 19- have been very helpful. I appreciate it so much.
1: Okay, no problem.
0: You have a great day.
1: You too. Okay, Bye-bye. hold on one second. Let me transfer you to my um,
0: my desk. Okay. Oh, sure. Thank you.
1: Hold I'm down. looking for
0: a case number. I have a court document, and it says the one I'm looking for, which is um, assault, second-degree assault, it says that the court where it was was Waterbury. Okay, what kind of records request? Uh, police reports, old police reports. Oh, like a bunch of them? Well, I, I've got a couple cases I want to look at, but um, they'd be incident First reports one, from, you know, 40, 80s please and 90s. Press two. The story I am about to tell you is true. It's about an abduction and murder that occurred in 1989 in Lake City, Florida. I have relied heavily on police reports and public documents, and I'll speak with people familiar with the victim and certain aspects of the case. All the opinions you'll hear from people I interview, as well as my opinions, and what I feel may have occurred, are just that. It's up to you to decide who and what you find credible. In the end, facts are what matter when determining guilt or innocence and everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Uh, Everything is done through email with records. Oh, okay. What's the email I'm
1: looking for? At www.jud.ct.gov Is there a bunch of them? Because I was thinking you could just send the money in
0: and we could check. Please hold a moment. Covering cases like this takes a lot of time and effort, and a lot of legwork. I won't even get into the fees that are associated with some of these document requests because they can be ridiculous. You can't ever get the full picture of a case without doing this kind of legwork. I would say that you can actually harm a case as a podcaster or reporter if you just skim the surface and then present it in an incomplete form, as if that's the gist of the story. Particularly if you have a large following And those people take what you are saying with some type of authority. I feel like there's a lot of this going on these days, and it's really just laziness. If you truly want to cover a case in a way that's responsible, you have to make calls. You have to speak to witnesses. You have to beg county clerks for as many documents as you can get your grubby little paws on. And do as much as you can within your power to gather enough facts to back up the assertions made by people that you talk to. Simply reading a few articles online and summarizing them is not a good faith way to approach covering a case where a violent offense has occurred. An actual human being has died. Questions remain unanswered. And if you're going to cover these cases, then you owe it to the victim to do it right, or at least make the effort. In this case, there were a lot of associated police files that I had to call around and get in order to have a complete picture, at least as complete as possible, about what happened to Darlene Messer. Before we delve into suspects, because there are a few of them, and when I got the case file sent to me by Columbia County Sheriff's Department, there was literally a digital file within the main file that was titled suspect. So it was pretty easy to see who they were looking at as suspects over the course of the investigation. But before I get into those, I want to get into the various reports that are associated with this case above and beyond the investigative report itself because I think that they'll provide information that we will find useful going forward. So the two types of reports that we will go over today are the Emmy ME report, Medical Examiner's Report, and some related police reports made by Darlene herself that could provide some clues as to who killed her. That second batch, the reports generated by calls that Darlene made or police reports that she was named in, would assist us in the area of victimology, which generally includes things about the victim that may put them at a greater risk of being victimized. So let's start with the medical examiner's report. One thing we know for sure is that how someone was killed can tell us a great deal about who might have killed them. Unfortunately, when there's conflicting information about how someone was killed, well, that's going to create problems in identifying true suspects. The first thing you need to know about Darlene Messer's injuries is that there were a lot of them, and they were horrific. The death certificate lists cranio-cerebral injuries due to blunt head trauma as the cause of death. In a box marked Describe How Injury Occurred, it says, quote, Apparently beaten about the head. Now we're going to set aside how a word like apparently probably shouldn't make its way into an official death certificate, because one hopes that we can be a bit more specific than apparently, on the final record of note regarding someone's life. Now remember I told you that Darlene was found face down in the creek below the small bridge, with her hands and most of her arms under her body? Based on the report, I would describe her position this way. If you're standing at the side of the bridge that she's been thrown over and look straight down, her feet are closest to the bridge, while her head points away from the bridge. And according to the rough drawing in the report made by the investigator, her body is basically straight up and down or parallel with the creek that she's laying in. So if you're looking down, her head is at the top, her feet are at the bottom, as if she was standing on the top of the cement bridge railing and just fell straight forward and landed flat on her front. And again, her hands and most of her arms were beneath her body. Darlene was taken to the office of the medical examiner in Jacksonville, Florida, for her autopsy. She was found wearing the blue jeans and pullover turquoise shirt that her mother described her as having worn to work that day. But she was discovered wearing only one white sneaker and one earring in her left ear. The other earring and sneaker were missing. As far as I can see, neither were ever found, although we will hear a bit about an earring later in a witness transcript. The report also notes that Darlene was wearing beige pantyhose. None of these clothing items were described as having been torn or pulled down or in any way displaced, like you would expect to find, for example, in a sexually motivated crime. Now, I want to be clear, because that does not necessarily rule out sexual motivation, but the positioning of the clothing is informative nonetheless. Regarding her facial injuries, they are described alternately as total damage and total destruction. The initial M.E. report says that there was a bullet hole in the back of her neck, although none of the subsequent reports, including the death certificate, mentioned a gunshot at all. Now I'm going to go through and list everything that's noted on the rough drawings made by the medical examiner. She had a bruise on her left shoulder, incise wounds to both hands, more on her right than her left, and they are on both the palms and the back of both hands. Three of the wounds on her right hand are described as through and through, meaning all the way through, and based on the markings in the picture, it appears that on both sides, the wounds on the palm directly relate to the injuries on its corresponding dorsum, meaning the surface of the hand opposite its palm. It looks like four in a row on the right hand dorsum, three of which went all the way through. There's only one on the left hand, which is on the left ring finger, nearer to the tip the base, not the hand itself. And again, that injury being in the same location on the inside of the finger as its corresponding outside. The back of her head, which would have been facing up toward the top of the waterline when she was found, has many deep lacerations from the mid-region to the neck. There are also deep lacerations to her face, which would have been facing down when she was found into the water. The lacerations to her face are deep enough to expose bone in multiple places. The notes regarding the injuries around her jaw and mouth say that the edges of the skin are partially eaten. There is a deep laceration above her left eye on her forehead on the left side with underlying depressed skull fracture. Then a circular depressed skull fracture on the top of the head with radiating fractures. I hate that I have to be so specific about these injuries, but in this case, I think it's necessary so that you'll understand the next piece of information that I'm going to share. Darlene was murdered in 1989, and I'm going to read you a supplemental report that was written in 1992, three years into the investigation. In
1: 1992, this writer was working on another case involving Dr. William Maples at the University of Florida. Dr. Maples is a forensic anthropologist and is a very renowned expert in the field of identification, wounds, etc., around the world. During the time that we were together, I mentioned this case to Dr. Maples, and he requested to see the photographs. The case had originally been a Jacksonville Medical Examiner's case, and they stated that the wounds appeared to have been caused by a claw of a hammer or a blunt-type object, and that the wounds to the hand appeared to be seven defensive knife wounds. Dr. Maples examined the photos and took measurements of the wound tracks and examined the other wounds on the hands. Dr. Maples then told this writer that there were only two wounds on the entire body that were caused by homicidal means. These wounds consisted of two circular one-inch holes. One of the wounds was at the top of the head and the other to the base of the skull. Both of the wounds passed through the skull and entered the area of the brain and either would have been sufficient to cause the victim's death. Dr. Maples advised that the other injuries, which entailed the tearing of the side of the jaw area, the other injuries on the head, and the injuries on the hand, were all caused after death by an alligator. I talked with the medical examiner about this opinion, and they agreed with Dr. Maples that this is most likely what happened. Signed, Sergeant Randy Roberts.
0: Notice that nowhere in there were either of the circular holes described as gunshot wounds, despite the original M.E. report describing the one at the base of her skull as a bullet hole. The renowned expert described the two homicidal wounds as two circular one-inch holes. Obviously, I was confused after I read this, so I hoped that I could speak with one of the detectives about it for clarification. Initially, the sergeant at the Columbia County Sheriff's Office who had gathered the records told me that a few of the original investigators still worked there, so I could probably talk to them. Later, I was informed that the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, or FDLE, was assisting this open investigation, and because of that, none of the investigators could give me an interview. He did answer a few of my initial questions, though, one regarding animal predation. Of that, he said, quote, some damage on the body was done by animals in the creek. But it was clearly a homicide, and she was killed with blunt force trauma. Again, no mention of a gunshot wound or a bullet hole. Blunt force trauma. So I can't say for certain whether investigators have accepted the final conclusion of Dr. Maples, the forensic anthropologist, that only two of her wounds was done by the perpetrator, the two circular one-inch holes to the top of the head, and the other was at the base of the skull, or if they think some of the wounds were animal predation, but some of the others were from blunt force trauma. Let's talk about what weapon would cause a blunt force injury of one inch in a circle. A hammer, maybe? I've seen a lot of hammer wounds, and they do make circular injuries that often have underlying skull injuries with radiating fractures, as is described in the ME report. Unfortunately, we can't know for sure how much of the damage to Darlene was due to animal predation and how much was due to whatever weapon the perp used. At least not with the information that we have, because animal predation can often mask other injuries. I will say this, there was a lot of blood up on that bridge. At least I would describe that as a lot, and I couldn't imagine it all coming from a bullet hole to the back of the head, which we've pretty much ruled out because no one's saying bullet hole anymore, unless they're keeping that a secret. But it's also really hard to imagine a medical examiner mistaking a bullet hole to the back of the neck, which tend to be smaller in size than a one-inch circular hole, unless we're talking about something larger than a handgun, and I think that would be fairly obvious. The renowned expert is describing both one-inch circular injuries the same, neither of which he calls a bullet hole. And Columbia County isn't mentioning anything about a gun today, either. Blunt force trauma is their story. So if we're just talking about Darlene being inflicted with blunt force trauma at the top of that bridge, a great deal of it would have had to be inflicted to create bleeding in that large of an area, whether it started in the car or not. I can certainly see those images as an indication that she was beaten right there on that bridge with whatever weapon caused that blunt force trauma. And that's what those images represent to me. An attack that either started or finished right there on Swift Creek Bridge. I think it's much less likely that she laid there on that bridge for a little bit, in multiple positions, to create those large, dried pool puddles. I don't feel as though when you're about to dump a body, you're leaving them too long to bleed before you toss them over, particularly when your car is parked right there in the middle of the road. You see how frustrating this is, though, right? Not knowing for sure which of her injuries were caused by a weapon and which might have been caused by an animal after the fact. If her body was injured by an alligator after she went into the water, we need to understand that. So what if some of those gruesome facial injuries were from another weapon that also caused the blunt force trauma injuries, like, as initially described by the medical examiner, the claw from a hammer? Or a weapon that was sharp on one end and had something like a one-inch round handle at the other end? Then one single weapon could make two different but distinct types of injuries, like Darlene had, and that would make more sense even if, afterwards, some animal predation was involved. I think the theory about a gator has some merit, particularly when you consider those through-and-through hand injuries that could be bite marks. But then I keep going back to the position of the body, and I have a hard time with a gator leaving her in the position that she was in, with both of her hands underneath her after the gator has chewed on them. I suppose he could have chewed on her hands and then clamped onto her head and dragged her into a straight position, not very far, because where she fell was right down, straight down beneath the bridge, but anyway, I think you get what I'm trying to describe now, and it's awful to even have to think about it, and I don't think I need to go any further with this, because you guys now have all the information you need to think it through based on her injuries and her position, and your personal understanding of animal predation, specific to a gator, and whatever else might be in a creek in the middle of a swampy Florida area. So you can decide how possible you think that is and how many of her wounds may or may not have been made in what way. What I'm trying to impress on you is that it's a whole different crime from a profiling perspective. If you have a robbery abduction with a gunshot, let's say she was robbed with a gun, they killed her with a gun, and then they dumped her body. Then it is if you have a robbery abduction and then a massive amount of blunt force trauma to her head and her face before she's thrown in the water. Then you add in the possibility of animal predation, and that kind of confuses it a little bit more. But the blunt force trauma, it's different from a gunshot in that it's often more personal. It's up close. But who robs a store with a hammer or some other handheld tool? Because if the perpetrator had a gun, and none of her wounds were due to a gunshot, why didn't they use the gun to kill her? And do you think Darlene would struggle against her attacker if they had a gun? I know I wouldn't. Someone pulls a gun on me. My hands are up and they can have whatever the hell they want. I'll throw in a few cartons of cigarettes and I'll walk all the beer they want out to the car for them. I'll carry it. Just please don't shoot me. But if someone comes at me with something other than a gun, I'm probably going to fight back because I have a fighting chance. What does all of this evidence at both scenes together tell us? Was this just a random burglary offense gone wrong or was it something else? Are you starting to see how the confusion about injuries can muddy the already dark water we're treading when we're trying to decide what type of perpetrator we're looking for? Now you're going to have to excuse me because I'm about to toss a few more reports into that already muddy water. These reports would fall into the category of victimology. Items of interest and facts that police collect that better inform them of how or why a victim may have been high or low risk and what in their lives could have led to them becoming a victim. Now, this is not to blame the victim in any way. What victimology does is it gives law enforcement a starting point. It helps them better understand the person who has fallen victim. Things like what kind of job they do, their personality, things they may or may not have been predisposed to do, places they regularly went, people they hung out with. Are they shy or are they outgoing? Is their job risky or mundane? Anything that can be pulled together to help them better understand the victim and what could have contributed to their death. One of the first things police did, bright and early, around 5 a.m. after Darlene was abducted, was pull up every police report that they had on their computer with her name associated. There were a few, and that alone is interesting to me. Let's try a little experiment. How many police reports are there out there with your name on them? If you were killed today, God forbid, and police began with all the reports where your name was mentioned, what would they have to go on? Were you ever a witness to a crime where a police report was written? Have you ever initiated a police report? Have you ever been named as a suspect in a police report? In Darlene's case, the first one we have is dated January seventh, nineteen 1988. This was a report that Darlene made when she worked at the Jiffy Convenience Store at 4486 State Road 218 in Middleburg. It was a report about a robbery, and this would have been 18 months before her murder. The report notes that Suspect 1 came into the store and went to the beer counter while Suspect 2 waited outside. Suspect 1 proceeded to grab two cases of beer and run back outside, handing one case to Suspect 2. Then they both hightailed it out of there toward a vehicle that was parked on the cross street that Darlene was unable to see. She was able to give a description of one of the suspects, approximately 15, white, male, 5'5", 5 5 134 pounds, and dark hair. Now, they couldn't get any fingerprints because it was a high-traffic area, which made it impossible to distinguish which prints would have been the suspects, so the case was closed due to lack of evidence. Other than the robbery of the beer that night, this report gives us a bit more information about Darlene. First, this is another convenience store she worked at before she worked at the Suwanee Swifty in Lake City. The store that she was abducted from is about an hour away from this Jiffy store in Middleburg, where the beer robbery took place. And that's because, according to the address on her driver's license, she lived in Middleburg at the time. 1751 Freedom Drive in Middleburg, to be exact. And that is also important because this wasn't the only job she had in Middleburg. In Middleburg, she also worked at the Oyster Shack. And according to someone else who worked there, so did two of the suspects in this case. Remember Robert and Roger, a.k.a. Rob and Charlie? I'm going to refer to them from now on as Rob and Charlie just to make it easier. But they're the two young men who had been arrested for suspicious activity nine days before Darlene's murder, right there in her same store parking lot. Charlie's father stated that both young men had been at his home that night, that Darlene was abducted, and they were all up together until about 12.30 p.m. There are quite a few more police reports associated with Robin Charlie, and we'll get into those, along with the information on the other folks police treated as suspects, in a future episode. For now, I want you to focus on what police knew the day Darlene went missing, so that you'll understand what they knew, in the order that they knew it. That's really important when you're going back to look at a decades-old case understanding what cops knew and when they knew it, rather than the pile of information that we have now, which was gleaned over a span of decades. So they've got this incident report showing that Darlene had called the cops on 9 nineteen eighty nine, 1989 from the Suwannee Swifty store, and that's nine days before the fateful night. Police get a call at 2.56 a.m. about two males acting suspiciously in her parking lot. Now there's no interview with Darlene in this report or any further information or narrative about what caused her to call the police in the first place. Nowhere in the report does it note that Darlene knew these two males or whether she got a good look at them at all that night. In that regard, this report is lacking. That may not be because those items don't exist. It may just be that it wasn't included in what I was sent by law enforcement when I sent my FOIA request. You always have to presume that there's a possibility that there are documents that you do not have. What it does say, this report, is that an officer was dispatched, and when he arrived, he observed that Rob was, quote, working under the hood of a vehicle that he described as a red Pontiac Grand Prix, a two-door. Charlie was sitting inside the vehicle. Now, have I mentioned to you that he's a minor? Yeah, Charlie's a minor, driving around at 3 a.m. with what you'll now learn were multiple weapons in that car, both registered to his father. When the officer approached, he saw a shotgun in the passenger seat, and he noted that the breach was open and there was a round in the chamber. He immediately retrieved the weapon and unloaded it, and then asked Charlie to step out of the car. He got permission to search the vehicle, which he was told was Charlie's mother's. The report notes that in the car, the officer found less than 20 grams of marijuana in the glove box, a 25 caliber automatic pistol under the driver's seat, and open containers of Budweiser beer. He described as being able to smell the odor of alcohol on Charlie and also mentioned that after cuffing Rob behind his back, the 22-year-old slipped his cuffs in front of his body. Both were arrested and transported to jail. It was noted in the report that Rob already had an outstanding warrant out of Putnam County at the time. Now I want to direct your attention to what I think is the most chilling line in the entire report. It reads, quote, both defendants were intoxicated and refused to talk to this writer. I feel that if the two had not been stopped, they would have robbed the store. So this is the arresting officer basically saying that he was pretty sure those boys were about to rob the store and Darlene's spidey sense was right on track, whatever it was that compelled her to call them in the first place. Later, when investigators on Darlene's murder case contacted the arresting officer regarding this incident and asked him what he remembered about the vehicle, he said that it was maroon, rusted out, and had something weird about the roof. He remembered it being a Grand Prix. The homicide investigator noted in the report, quote, This description is very close to the description given by the witness who saw the suspect vehicle coming into the parking lot at the Suwanee Swifty approximately three to four minutes before the alarm went off. This would be the vehicle the Georgia couple saw and almost backed into on the night that Darlene was murdered. And then there's another thing I want to draw your attention to, and that's the notation about the officer pulling up and one of the suspects working under the hood of the car. I'd sure like to know what he was doing under that hood, but that's not something the officer noted in his report as having asked. I can't fault him for that because on the day this occurred, they didn't have a murder on their hands with a vehicle that matched this description, nor did they know that their murder suspect vehicle may have been leaking some type of fluid. Unfortunately, I saw nowhere in the report that I was given that suggests anyone asked or made any notation about whether the rusty red Grand Prix had any fluid leaks at the time. But from my perspective, the note about one of the guys working under the hood could suggest that there was something going on with the vehicle that night. Whether that something had to do with a fluid leak remains uncertain. Now let's talk about the oyster shack because this also involves one of the police reports pulled the day of Darlene's abduction in the early hours of the investigation. Another report that had her name included as a witness. In April of 1988, police went to the Oyster Shack in Middleburg. Darlene Messer was an employee at the Oyster Shack, and in this case, she was witness to criminal activity going on in the restaurant. Suspect one was William, or Billy, I'm told he was called. He was also an employee of the Oyster Shack and around 20 years old. Suspect two was Frank. He was 18 years old. I'll read directly from the report narrative. The witness, which is Darlene, Advised that on April 16, 1988, at or about 11:35 p.m., she observed Suspect 1 remove two cases of beer, two boxes of shrimp, and one large box of oysters through the back door of the oyster shack. Suspect 2 was waiting outside and helped Suspect 1 load it into Suspect 1's vehicle. On April 19, 1988, at 11:20 p.m., the witness saw Suspect 1 pass three cases of beer and one case of shrimp. To suspect two through the rear door of the restaurant, suspect one then gave the witness Darlene Messer a ride to her home. On this date, when she arrived home, she asked suspect one for a beer. Suspect one gave her a beer from the trunk of his vehicle. It was the same brand and packaging as suspect one had passed to suspect two. On 4/22/1988 at 11:35 p.m., suspects one and two carried out two cases of beer and two boxes of shrimp through the back door as reported by the witness. Again, the witness was given a ride home by suspect one. Again, she asked for and received a beer, as before. On these three occasions, the witness said that she had attempted to persuade the suspects to quit stealing. On April 23, 1988, at 11.45 p.m., she observed the suspects carrying two boxes of unknown contents through the back door. At this point, she decided to advise the owner of the restaurant. The suspects were read their Miranda warning and questioned. At the beginning of the interview, both suspects denied any knowledge of the incident. During the course of the interview, Suspect 1 admitted to having stolen the merchandise after the victim, the restaurant owner, offered to withhold filing charges if the suspects would pay restitution. Suspect 2 agreed to pay his share of the amount, but after only a few moments, both suspects advised that they had not stolen the merchandise, but had only admitted to it because they were afraid of going to jail. At this time, the victim, the store owner, confirmed that the merchandise was missing. Sergeant Gann was advised of the incident. I intend to apply to the State Attorney's Office for warrants for these suspects. Miss Messer said that there were no other witnesses. Property stolen. Six cases of Budweiser beer, one case of Michelob beer, five cases, or 250 pounds, of shrimp, and one case of oysters. Total $1,311.30. I found it mildly interesting that the whole process of one suspect grabbing the item from inside and handing it to suspect two outside was very much like what had occurred at the Jiffy store in that beer heist. But the gargantuan takeaway from this report is what it has in common with the previous report of the guys being arrested outside Darlene's store nine days before her murder. The name listed as the owner of that red 1977 Pontiac Grand Prix is Darlene's old boss from the Oyster Shack who I would later figure out was related to Charlie and not only that but Darlene knew both Rob and Charlie I'm told by another person who worked at the Oyster Shack that both of them worked there with her they knew her I guess the reason why I'm so gobsmacked here is because nowhere in the report that I was given was it noted that Darlene Messer the homicide victim personally knew Two of the possible suspects. Hello? Someone buried the lead. You'd think that would be something discussed in the report somewhere. So the real question is, why were Rob and Charlie an hour away from home around 3 a.m. the night the officer believed they were about to rob her store? With, I would like to remind you, two weapons in that vehicle, one being a shotgun that appears to have just been loaded. What brought those two young men that far out of their regular stomping grounds in Middleburg that night? Was it robbery? Or was it Darlene? One final report of note was about the weapons, which were confiscated the night Rob and Charlie were arrested in the parking lot of Darlene's store. The office of the state attorney drafted a letter dated September 18, 1989, which was the day that Darlene was abducted, to the evidence custodian at the Columbia County Sheriff's Office in Lake City regarding the incident on the 9th, nine days earlier. Quote, From the reports filed in the above-referenced case, it appears that two guns were seized. No one, however, was charged with any criminal offenses regarding the guns. If no criminal charges are anticipated regarding the guns, the State Attorney's Office has no objection to the release of the guns to the lawful owner. It was signed by the assistant state attorney, Leandra G. Johnson. Charlie's father, the owner of the guns, was CC'd on the bottom, indicating that a copy was to be sent to him. Two days later, on the 20th at 5.15 p.m., a little less than two hours before the state trooper was flagged down by the men who found Darlene's body, Charlie's father picked up the guns. So one thing is certain. As far as those guns... Robin and Charlie had no access to them on the night Darlene was murdered because they had been confiscated nine days earlier. If those two were involved and they planned to rob her store that night and abduct Darlene, they would need other weapons to do so. Stay tuned.